Welcome back to the Android Central Podcast. Happy 2018. My name is Daniel Bader. It is January 14th, and I'm joined by two people who, like me, just returned from Las Vegas. I was going to say Las Vegas, California. Las Vegas, Nevada from CES 2018. Alex Doby all the way across the pond. How are you, dude? I'm good. Yeah, I, I would have an excuse for my terrible geography. What's yours? <laughs> my my muddled brain. Uh, Andrew Martinick, welcome back. How are you, man? I'm doing just fine. I have no excuse, unlike either one of you. Well, I don't really have an excuse, but I'll make it anyway. I got the plague like so many others at the conference. Um, the plague being the very, very uh, ravenous flu that often shoots through CES. During very well documented. Daniel the, literally had bubonic plague. I, I can attest to this. <laughs> literally, was, was, uh, yes. I, I became, <laughs> I became Alex a Alex would know a, a thing or two monkey. about the plague. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, my, my voice is a bit hoarse, but I'll, I'll, I'll get us through this. Uh, we're, we're going to, if, if you caught our, a couple of our live CES, you know, uh, shows at the end of day zero and day one, we just went over all the big announcements of the day. This show is going to do a little bit of that. So we're going to retread some territory. We're going to expand where we can. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the news that we missed since we have been offline since the end of 2017. And we'll start with a big announcement that happened during the conference at Samsung's keynote, where DJ Ko, the head of Samsung's mobile division, hinted that, well, did more than hint, he announced that the Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus would be announced during a keynote at Mobile World Congress next month. Alex, take us through this and what we know of the impending announcement. Yeah, so this actually, interestingly, wasn't at the press conference itself uh, in Las Vegas, and I'm not even sure if DJ Co was there. I assume he was, but he didn't stand up on stage. You know, there was no saying, there was no like flashy teaser at the end of the press conference saying, you know, stay tuned for NWC for our next big thing. Um, the, the conference itself was mainly about Bixby and about Knox and about the whole ecosystem and very sort of IoT focused. Um, and from an Android side, not hugely interesting outside of the fact that something that I didn't know, actually all these smart fridges from Samsung uh, on some level run Android, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, Galaxy S9. So this was in an interview with um, ZDNet, which I believe has a, has a, a fairly significant Korean arm. So uh, there wasn't a direct quote that was attributed to him. Um, this likely came from a, an interview in Korean. But we know it'll be coming at MWC. Um, we know as a result that it'll probably pretty much steamroll every other device coming at that show, whether it's from LG or Sony or whoever else might be doing stuff. This is going to turn MWC once again into the Samsung show. It's all going to be about the S9 and the S9 Plus. So, Andrew, why would Samsung go back to announcing its flagship at MWC rather than doing a separate thing a few weeks later like they did in 2017? I, I'm not really sure, actually. I mean, other than the fact that, like what Alex said, they Samsung can uh, just steamroll everybody, so they might as well do it. Because um, it, let's be honest, it doesn't make as much of a difference for when Samsung announced something as it does when, you know, if you're LG or Sony or HTC, it matters a lot more to plan your launch, you know, kind of away from everyone else because you don't want to go, you know, head to head necessarily. You don't want to share the spotlight. 
but Samsung knows that it is the spotlight, so it wouldn't really matter. Um, it, but from from our perspective, as we've seen so many of these different launches go, yes, they're gonna they're gonna steamroll MWC, but they would guarantee that they would definitely get one hundred percent of all the coverage if they ran something like two weeks later. Uh, so it's very in, it's a it's a very interesting change of strategy. Uh, the last couple of years, they really demoted these. Um, big trade shows to things like tablets and wearables. And of course with CES, lots of appliances and TVs. So it still feels a little weird to me. Um, obviously Samsung could do whatever it wants and still pull off a gigantic launch. Um, it, the, also the second part of this is that this is a, a big move up in the timeline. Uh, the galaxy S eight was, launched in March and then, you know, general like worldwide availability was not until the beginning of April. So this is looking and like even it's going to be for Europe for most of the world outside the U S it was actually later in April. So significantly right. later in the year than we'll likely have uh, with this new launch. Right. We could be looking at a whole month sooner, uh, provided they follow a similar timeline, um, in terms of the announcement and then the launch. So I'm looking back at the last couple of years before the S eight was launched, uh, the S6, the S7, they were launched at Mobile World Congress. Uh, release date of the S7 was March 12th, 2016. Obviously, we know that the Note 7 pushed back the S8's launch a few weeks because Samsung needed to get its new testing facilities together. It needed to get its messaging together. It probably just needed to get its S together, right? It just needed to <laughs> be a bit more firm in its stance. And obviously, things went really well. There was a big flashy launch event we were we were at it in new york um and the years of samsung kind of being very loud and 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 i, I would say uh dis- distracting in its presentations are over they're they're very you know they're they're big flashy things but we don't see the offensive kind of weird stuff happening anymore it just feels more confident than than anything just like they don't mm-hmm. have to act out so much they're just like okay we all know that we're a big deal so we're just going to go ahead and do our thing here and that kind of what it, that's what it sounds like it's happening again this year so actually a couple of things here um if we're looking at the hardware, yeah, the battery testing and making sure that was 100% as much as possible, not going to cause any issues. Yeah, that that obviously caused kind of a uh, the S8 to uh, slip to later in the year. I think there were also some issues around Qualcomm's roadmap last year where the, the 835 wasn't ready until um, mm. a little bit later in the year as well. Perhaps that's different this year. We'll have to see. Um, obviously, if they're moving it up, then chance, you know, they can't do that in the US if the chip isn't ready, but it's going to be used in that country. So... Yeah, maybe Qualcomm's a bit further ahead of the game as well this year. Um, and yeah, as, as for the presentational side of it, I think, um, I mean, last year, it, you know, outside of the fact that they launched this dramatic new sort of design, um, outside of that, it was kind of a conservative year for Samsung. You know, the camera didn't change a whole lot um, until the Note came around. Uh, the performance wasn't a whole lot different. You know, uh, they had a slightly retooled UI, but in a lot of ways, it was quite a conservative year for them. They're not pushing anything particularly crazy in terms of battery or anything like that and maybe as you know we're a year removed now from the note 7 maybe they can start being a little bit bolder um so it, it, and actually not return to the you know the, the crazy over-the-top ostentatious samsung presentations of the past but you know 
just frame this in terms of moving from strength to strength. You know, uh, they had a great year last year and they want to put their best foot forward in 2018. We know a couple things about the S9 thanks to a leak uh, top half of the retail box. The one thing we know about the smaller S9 is that it'll have a variable aperture with a single camera. Uh, not unheard of, certainly, mm-hmm. and something that mm-hmm. Samsung itself has done in a Korean-only release. But Alex, what do you make of this? Is this a uh, is this heralding a big camera jump? Do you think, or is it mainly another iterative step? Uh, it's yeah, it's kind of interesting. And obviously, as we go down towards very, very, um, very, very low depth of field, very, very um, low, um, high f stops, it's um, you know at the other end of the scale. You don't always want that crazy uh, bokeh effect that you get with say an f one point five lens. So by having a variable aperture in there, although you know potentially you're introducing moving parts, which is a generally a bad thing in something like a smartphone, uh, you can imagine that would certainly help with things like portrait mode, uh, potentially mm-hmm. the ability to do that without a second lens. And um, yeah, if uh, if that's going to be the next big thing for them, then you know we'll we'll get the really really great uh, low light capabilities that you get with an f one point five lens, but at the same time potentially some unique sort of creative possibilities in there as well. So on the low end, it's F1.5 reportedly. On the high end, F2.4, that variable aperture obviously will allow the same kinds of portrait photos that the the Pixel 2 does with a single lens. So uh, given that Samsung does improve its technology a lot year over year generally, things like iris scanning, face scanning, we can expect the same thing from the S9, S9 Plus. Uh, Andrew, S9 Plus will have a second camera for Mm -hmm. that actual physical live focus capability. Um, But I think the biggest thing for people is that the shape of that camera module and the fingerprint sensor is going to be a little bit more uh, accessible I mean, especially on the smaller Galaxy S9, uh, even though, I mean, I'm just thinking about proportion wise, um, it's it's lining up to really be very similarly proportioned to the Galaxy S8 and S8 Plus. Um, So when you move just when you move that fingerprint sensor down uh, just a handful of millimeters and center it, it just makes it so much easier to reach now. uh, We would still love to see it like roughly where that Samsung logo is. Um, but obviously this is the one place that, that Samsung thinks that it has, you know, kind of the, the Z depth and the room underneath for the, the components, which is right next to the camera that already requires a lot of Z depth. Um, I, I'm ready to just hold back judgment on it because I've been so outspoken about how terrible the current fingerprint sensor placement is. I don't want to just assume that this is a silver bullet, but it is a pretty good recognition from Samsung that, okay, that last one was pretty bad and uh, iris scanning didn't really live up to expectations. And the fact that they made this move, if if it ends up being the case, uh, it kind of indicates that iris scanning, even if it is improved, you know, you know, isn't going to be the, the be-all end-all for authentication either. You know, Samsung's still dealing with authentication APIs that only work with fingerprint sensors uh, for Android. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see exactly what sort of the overall biometric picture is on this phone. Um, obviously, the fingerprint sensor isn't going away. Um, it doesn't look like the iris scanner is going away either. 
And yet at the same time, uh, at least in Samsung's chip, in the Exynos version of this, uh, a big feature that was uh, talked about in the announcement of that chip uh, is the idea of uh, 3D face scanning. And uh, you would imagine that if Samsung traditionally has been a fast follower of Apple, that's a a generous way of saying in in years past they've blatantly copied some Apple features. Um, You'd imagine that pretty decent face scanning to unlock should be a part of this phone, given that you know, you know Honor and OnePlus can already do this with existing you know, off-the-shelf components. Um, so maybe you know if, if iris scanning is there, maybe it's just a case of you know, Samsung. Uh, you know, it's there for the same reason that the heart rate scanner <laughs> that no one uses is is there on Samsung phones right. because Samsung finds it so hard to just remove features that you still have this feature creep to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, it should be a, a whole lot easier between this uh, face unlocking, even if it's just as good as what we have on the OnePlus 5T. Yeah, uh, no combine kidding. that with a fingerprint scanner you can actually reach. Um, you know, chances are you'll still have a lot of choices there in how you unlock the phone, but it should be a lot easier than what you used to on a you know current 2017 Samsung model. So final thing on the S9 before we move on, stereo speakers. This will be uh, the first time an, a Galaxy flagship has had two speakers, presumably in the same way that HTC is doing it today, a speaker at the top amplified, uh, sort of the, the headpiece amplified to the point where it can, can emit some, some decent sound plus the, uh, the regular mono downward port speaker that we've known from galaxy phones for years. This is table stakes, right? Everybody needs to have yeah. stereo speakers now. The Pixel 2 does it. Uh, Alex, you've reviewed the Razer phone, which does it exceptionally well. The iPhone 10 does it. So if this phone is to compete properly, it needs to have better sound. But obviously, these will still ha- this phone will still have a headphone jack, which is something that has all but disappeared from every other flagship on the market. Uh, with one or two exceptions, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of prominent examples of it going away this past year, but you still have LG, you still have, you know, last year, Samsung itself, OnePlus, um, many others, you know, Honor, who decide to keep that around. Uh, and it seems like the main reason for getting rid of it is just to try and be competitive in terms of the amount of battery you can fit in there. That's the main thing that you lose if you have a headphone jack sticking in it. Um, but yeah, obviously, it is kind of table stakes now to have at least a decent, you know, not just go with that bottom firing speaker. Uh, and based on the, the renders we've seen so far, it looks like they're going with that, like you said, the HTC-style setup where you have uh, the top earpiece and a bottom-firing woofer, uh, not the, the Nexus-slash-Pixel uh, setup where you have these these two sort of true equal stereo speakers, top and bottom. Okay, so you mentioned LG. Uh, another piece of very interesting news that came out of CES was that the company's vice chairman noted that they will be moving away so this is a, a new kind of mobile team pushing LG's mobile vision into a new direction. The company will be moving away from releasing new flagship phones every year. And the quote is, we will unveil new smartphones when it is needed, but we will not launch it because other rivals do. We plan to retain existing models longer by, for instance, unveiling more variant models of the G series or V series. Andrew, what do you think about this move from LG, which has as we know, lost money for years yeah. now on its mobile division. I mean, that's that's purely where I'm coming at it from is, well, their their current strategy of having, first of all, they, they, they go above and beyond, really, because they have two flagship platforms, the G Series and the V Series. So it was already kind of crowded for a company that, 
despite its massive mind share, you know, really doesn't have big market share and uh, consistently loses money. I think they've they've turned a profit in specific quarters um, a couple times over the last five years. Um, they're not losing lots of money, and it's such a small portion of LG's overall corporate uh, structure that it, it, it's okay. But it, it's understandable that they have this change of guard at the top, and they're going to consider doing something a little different now. From the perspective, like I think it would already be a good idea to drop down to just one flagship phone uh, from two, or if you're going to do this G series V series thing, do it in more of a TikTok situation where you know you do one one year, one the other year, and then um, you know we know that LG already loves doing these um, special edition things where you know they put one out later with extra RAM and storage and a couple new color options or something like that. I could easily see them iterate a couple times on that. That really cuts down costs and um, still keeps you fresh. Um, the only problem is you start to lose a little bit of the enthusiast factor. Um, enthusiasts love to see you know a regular release cadence so they can know what's coming up. Um, but let's be honest, the average person doesn't know the exact release cycle of anything aside from you know maybe knowing that there's an iPhone every fall. Um, and even then, uh, it's just kind of like, well, they need a phone when they need a phone. And as long as something's at the top of mind, it doesn't really necessarily matter when it came out you know, to the average person. Yeah, I think the sort of cadence of the G series and V series never really worked particularly well um, with each other, especially not in the past year where you had the V30 pretty much just replace the G6. Uh, the yeah. size difference wasn't huge. Uh, the G uh, the V30 was basically just an upgraded version of that phone. Um, it, you know, it just you know better in many ways. Uh, so. I think, yeah, if they, if they still want a big small phone and a small phone or, you know, more variants, whatever, LG could certainly do that. LG has done that in the past, as you said. But uh, I think they just need to take this opportunity to kind of rethink what they want to do with phones. And if they want a big phone and a small phone, like, what does that look like? How big do they want to go? What is going to be special about an LG phone? Because they're still kind of, I mean... It used to be that the LG phone was, you know, had the the thin bezels and uh, the larger displays. Nowadays, that's everyone, and they've really sort of since the days of the G4 and G3 struggled to come up with anything to kind of replace that. So, um, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see what direction they take it. I think Evan Blass was talking about as a potential replacement for the G brand uh, LG trademarked um, LG Icon for smartphones and LG Iconic for a smartwatch. So, mm. um, who knows? Certainly that's a little bit more meaningful than just a, you know, yet another letter and a number. It's just so interesting because LG's been the, one of the top three uh, manufacturers in the U S over the last few years under Apple and Samsung. And yet it's experimenting in a way that a smaller company would be more likely to, uh, we, you know, let's go yeah. back to that G three, that, um, it was it was you know a really good phone. It put those put the uh, the power and and volume buttons on the back to give that screen a little bit more room to give the the bezels um, less to, to make the bezels take up less room. The G four had that curvature along with the G Flex two, which we can forget about. G five first modular phone that nobody wanted. Uh, and then the G6, and the G6, as you said, Alex, was a, a, a comeback. It was, it was a return to 
what made LG such a great phone brand, and yet it was arguably ignored more than any of the others. It's just it's well, a it's a strange I mean, it turn came, of events. <laughs> it came two years after Samsung did it with the Galaxy S six. A hundred percent. But if so I mean, that's that's the tough part of it. Right. And that that continues to be LG's biggest struggle is how to get out of Samsung's enormous orbit. Can it happen? It's just I don't know. I mean, that's the interesting thing is these things, it's not like they can choose to pivot on a dime and just create a new phone. You know, we we talk a lot about how long the development cycles are on these devices. And so to kind of think that they're going to be just kind of constantly developing on something. And then at some point they say, okay, six months from now, we're going to release a phone. So we're going to lock this in now. You know, you, you still have an opportunity to get burned. It's not like you're going to be able to just avoid the rest of the industry, but obviously they can do, um, something similar to what HTC and Motorola do. I mean, they just pick out, you know, June, July, like dead center of the year to announce a phone when you know that uh, a lot of the other big manufacturers are doing, you know, a, um, an early spring and then a, you know, early fall kind of launch. And you, you can kind of aim for that. But I think the bigger thing is for LG to just settle down on, something that works hopefully they can find that and iterate just a little bit um, rather than trying to do this extremely varied kind of shotgun approach you you noted over geez six years straight yeah uh, and we you mentioned kind of that phones don't just happen overnight there Uh, something we know from lg from uh, speaking of in korea last year was that uh, and actually from the year before as well that uh, they have multiple designs in development at the same time uh, you know, it's not unusual right. for them to have, say, a modular design, a non-modular design uh, in the past few years or different kind of uh, concepts. There was that crazy concept for the V30 that never saw the light of day that had this that like sliding design um, that was talked about last year. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if at this stage, given you know, where LG is, that there were, again, multiple competing designs. If they're targeting maybe, uh, I don't know, mid-summer or something, that it might still not be locked in even now as to what that phone will ultimately look like. It's crazy. Well, mm-hmm. on the flip side, you know, let's let's use this as to transition into CES proper. Uh, we saw a lot of really cool stuff at CES, but what's interesting is that the conversation around LG versus Samsung is completely different in the TV space. Uh, LG owns the OLED TV market. Samsung announced yet another technology based on LED called uh, motion LED, MLED. Uh, Still not true OLED, but it's it's a type of LED that does emit its own light. Uh, It gets very, very dark and is about as close to OLED as an LED can be, but it's not OLED. And LG announced a whole bunch of interesting upgrades to its own OLED line for 2018, including support for Google Assistant. Andrew, Mm -hmm. it was just the first of, I think, hundreds of product announcements with Google Assistant in them. And I don't know, it it was kind of overwhelming to keep track. Yeah, I I think that uh, one of the Google representatives we talked to said there are going to be over 300 uh, Google Assistant related announcements. But uh, LG's we're pretty smart and I, it kind of seems like LG is taking a, a smart approach from being a little bit varied. They understand that they can't do 
they can't pull a Samsung and try to make Bixby. So what they're doing is they're making their own, they have their, their own smart home platform uh, since branded think that's T H I N capital Q. It's not uh-huh. think you like they, thin, thin <laughs> they announced Q. it on well, stage. The TVs are thin. So it's thin Q. Maybe I, anyway, um, they're doing that stuff is all internal. So they have, sure. They have a, a good processor in their new TVs. It can do, natural language processing so that you can say, you know, back up the show, you know, rewind two minutes or show me, you know, these shows or control this light, or you could turn on your washing machine from your TV or whatever. That's really internal, easy stuff to do. But then for everything else that goes beyond their, their tight scope, they're just saying, okay, Google assistant is just here. And I think, Oh, shut up phones. Uh, I think that this is really smart because Otherwise, we'd get like a cut rate version of Bixby, which is already kind of a cut rate version of Google Assistant or Amazon Alexa. So that just wouldn't work out in their favor. So now they know that you can use the same remote on the same TV. And if the TV itself can't handle something, you ask it something more general. What's the weather or, you know, when did this actor die or whatever google assistant can just step in and handle that and that also opens up a huge realm of smart home capabilities if you want to go down that route i think it's a very smart move from lg even though it kind of gives up a little bit of control i don't think it's nearly as much of a problem as if they tried to build something from the ground up on their own and they just just can do it so one of those major announcements uh having to do with assistant was through Google's new uh, smart display platform, starting with the Lenovo smart display. You guys got to demo this. It is a super cool concept based on Android things. Alex, walk us through exactly what this does. So this is effectively taking the Google Home experience and extending everything that it can do with a screen tagged onto it. Um, And the difference between this and, say, a tablet or a PC or whatever is that it's designed to sort of sit there in the background. It is in almost like this continuous ambient thing that is just always there. Uh, it isn't designed to be sat down at and you know to have used apps on it in a traditional way. Uh, instead, it's a continuation of of a you know a Google Home. Something that is just there in the background. And Google demonstrated a few kind of interesting things to us on the these uh, uh, two Lenovo smart display units at uh, CES. So in addition to um, actually the the big new thing, which presumably should work on um, Google Home devices as well, is uh, called, what's the name for it? Routines, I think, Andrew, is that it? Yeah, that's kind of their internal system for what what happens. Like you can stack different things together and have them execute at specific times of the day. So you could have your morning routine where it tells you the weather, tells you your appointments, um, tells you the news, or doesn't tell you the news, depending on what kind of mood you want to wake up in, um, and then launches you into whatever. You could have a morning playlist or something like that. So, um, yeah, you can set that for any time of the day or for specific events or whatever. Uh, other, other other kind of things have to do with uh, just taking advantage of just the fact that you have a screen. So launching YouTube videos, it is a cast target. When it's casting a video, Google, other uh, Googlers there were saying, basically, it's just casting to itself. So it can mm-hmm. instantiate casting on another device. Or Which is it can wicked cast just smart. Directly. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And it's actually... You know, you're really sort of blurring the lines there between uh, something like a tablet, which would run apps, and basically a TV. Um, so, you know, for 
the situations where you'd have this in the kitchen, you could follow recipes, you can ask Google for recipes, you can see them on a screen, whereas before you might have to just listen to them. Uh, and actually, you know, with something like food, getting an idea of what it looks like uh, makes it much more tangible and, you know, easier to deal with. Uh, and also uh, you know, just YouTube videos, getting into uh, recipe videos, that kind of thing, launching straight into that just from pressing something on a screen. Um, and, you know, although voice can be very convenient, there are instances where, you know, you're scrolling down a list, you see something on screen, just tapping it is easier than trying to explain to a computer what you want to do. Yeah, I think that this works as a really good stopgap there before the voice control gets really good. I mean, you think about something like creating a reminder or creating an appointment with a specific person at a specific time and location. It's a lot easier to get visual feedback. So think about this as giving you visual feedback rather than necessarily being a touch input device. Yes, there are some places where you can scroll through recipes or you can tap on specific ongoing tasks or tap play and pause on Google Play Music, but it's not an interface in in that sense. You're never going to see a grid of apps or a set of icons that you can select from. It very much is instantiated by, by voice and then you get this feedback of what's going on that can really save you two or three follow-up questions from the speaker. And that's going to make a huge difference for a lot of people that just get kind of lost in voice. I mean, I get, I get lost in the voice controls a lot myself. What's really interesting here is I think us Google people, us nerds got really hype about this, but the based on anecdotal evidence, page views, all the things that, tell you whether a product is exciting to the regular person, this didn't break through. The Lenovo Smart Display itself didn't break through. The idea of the Smart Display platform didn't really break through. Why do you think that is? Like, What's, what's happening here? Uh, is there a disconnect between what we think is necessary in the home and what the average person does, given that the latest stats show that there are now 39 million smart speakers in use in the United States? Well, I think that there are two parts of that. The first part is people, uh, we, we got a little bit of a view of this with the Echo Show. It doesn't, it, it hadn't really lived up to what people wanted, um, partially because it's just expensive. And the other part being just the execution wasn't great compared to a standard um, Echo it didn't give you too much more, but it costs like twice as much. And so there was a little bit of a disconnect there. And then at the same time, I think that we we have to give Google some uh, some runway here to continue to, to so to integrate all of this smart display branding and or whatever they want to call it, uh, branding into the Google Home, Google Assistant massive, massive, massive uh, marketing and advertising campaign that they're doing right now. Because right now it's very easy for them to just market the Google Home, Google Home Mini, and now Google Home Max to a lesser extent being uh, more of a niche market. I think that it's going to be very easy for them to, because Google runs a lot of its own ads, and I could easily see them running ads for partner products in the way that they say, you know, look, this is this is the Google Home. And oh, by the way, you want one with a, one with a display? That's fine. It's kind of the the old Apple thing of, you know, it's okay if one of our products dies off, if it's um, 
to sell one of our other products, um, Google is going to be happy to sell just even if it's just a fraction fewer Google Homes, if it means that those sales um, and then some go toward a screen version. I don't think that I mean, we don't know pricing for all of these, but we're looking at the smaller Lenovo Smart Display, which is a very um, nice looking device, very well designed. $199 or $249 for the 10-inch. That's quite a bit more than a standard Google Home and way more than a Google Home Mini, of course. Um, not everybody's going to see the value in that. And that's why the Google Home and Google Home Mini are still going to exist on their own. And kind of interesting to look at the different sort of strategy for Google for these smart displays compared to just the regular Google Home. When we first got Assistant on a speaker, it was on a Google product, uh, on the original Google Home. Uh, now we're seeing Google announcing this whole smart uh, display initiative with a bunch of different partners and picking out Lenovo specifically for sort of the hero device that's going to be running this. Um, and I don't know, is there anything that you guys would draw from that? It, it seems to be, uh, you know, as much as the hardware side of Google was on show at CES and there are plenty of Google devices that you could go and look at, Google's little cool outdoor booth thing, Um yeah, for the displays, it was all about, you know, they were very much manufacturer branded. There wasn't, this isn't going to be something that would be Google branded, sold on the, you know, made by Google store. There was a JBL and an LG version also. Yeah, I think Sony has one as well. Hey, my, my take from that is Google wants to catalyze Assistant as quickly as, as possible. It wants to see Assistant in as many products sold by as many companies as possible to catch up with Amazon because it will be the new interface for a new generation of of users of of internet of the way that people connect to the internet and right now Amazon has around 68% of the market share in the US of those 39 million 68% of them are Amazon Echo products or Alexa based products sorry Alexa um sorry i don't know that yeah, you don't know how many sold. That's tr- that's fine. You're dumb. Um, and and what I would say is is Google probably. I mean, we know that Google Home and Home Mini run Android things, or at least a variant of it. Right? It's just yep. not Android things with a screen. So this is essentially the same operating system as as the Google Assistant. It's just not sold by Google. What's really interesting to me, though is the same strategy was used with the routers, right? If you remember OnHub, it was initially yeah. sold by TP-Link and Asus. And then when those didn't really work out, Google got its own manufacturer, brought those in-house and produced Google Wi-Fi. I wouldn't be surprised if in a year or two, Google releases its own version of a home with a screen. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either. Uh, but I think your point is extremely well taken that this is the way to do it. Uh, this is the Google Chrome strategy. Make it for various platforms and just let the thing grow and hopefully it catches on. Uh, I mean, geez, any any percentage as well as Chrome has, that's going to be fantastic for Google. Um, I do think it's a little surprising that it made the Google Home Mini, Google Home Max. Obviously, it knew that growing that Google Assistant ecosystem was, you know, made sense, but then it didn't do its own thing. Although, I mean, really look at that Lenovo uh, smart display. It was the only one at CES that was actually operational. All the other ones were running demo loops. Um, Google was demonstrating uh, 
the smart display uh, interactions on the smart display that that was their device. Um, the only outward facing Lenovo branding is on the back, just kind of stenciled onto the back. You could set the thing right next to a Google Home and it would look perfectly like Google designed it. it um, it's not hard to see there's extreme Google influence not enough, there. Not enough carpet for it to be a Google design product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only thing it's missing is carpet, but just the the swooping lines and you know the wood on the back is very cool and uh, how well the thing is made. It's just not, it doesn't, I mean, no offense, Lenovo, it does not look like a typical Lenovo product. Uh, it looks much more like a, a googly product. Well, I, I also think that's another really interesting point Google demoed a Lenovo device to you, right? Yeah. And I heard throughout the show floor, anytime a new product with a system was being shown off, there were Google handlers nearby answering questions. They oh, yeah. So this is the really quickly, just so you sparked my, my memory. Every single booth, so you, I said there were like 300 announcements with the Google Assistant. Every booth that had an announcement, whether it was an Android, an old Android TV that just has Assistant on it or is a new car head unit or something like that, they had a separate mini Google booth inside of their CES booth with Googlers in it ready to talk about the exact same product that everybody else is talking about in the larger booth in a closed space where they will give you a, a more in-depth demo. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see Google's strategy around this. They want to control the narrative, but they don't want to be overt about it. They want to be subtle. It's very smart. Um, talking about screens, okay? Uh, <laughs> we saw small screens, we saw mid-sized screens, and then we saw BFGDs. Big oh, yeah. format gaming displays. These were uh, three of a new initiative from NVIDIA that, I don't know, they blew my mind. I don't know about you, Andrew, but Absolutely. these are 4K 65-inch G-Sync gaming displays that sit on, uh, presumably on one's desk, attached to a very, very <laughs> I'll powerful take issue computer. with that, but yeah. <laughs> and it is... They're not priced right now, but they are going to be insanely expensive. And they have a, a secret tucked away within them. Tell us about it. The, so if you took a Shield Android TV and you ripped all the plastic off of it, and then you just kind of glued it inside of a display, that's, that's what you have here. <laughs> uh, it, it's a little more integrated than that, obviously, but it is literally the exact same hardware down to the chips that's in a Shield Android TV you can buy today for 179 bucks, And I think it's extremely smart from NVIDIA's perspective to give people... So these don't have TV tuners. They're not really intended to be TVs. They're just going to have DisplayPort and HDMI in. And whether you put it on a desk or you know on a game, kind of a game-focused room or a theater kind of thing is obviously up to you, whatever your eyes and neck can handle, I guess. But having, you know, all these other TV platforms have like this smart platform where, you know, in some cases it's Android TV, but not often where you have this home screen kind of situation when you're not actively playing games or watching, uh, you know, cable or whatever. And NVIDIA needed something like that. Otherwise, 
you know, there's a little bit less value in this. And so this way they could just, this is already something they're making. This is something they're doing. So might as well just, just graft a shield into there. Right. Yeah. And, uh, as with, I mean, I only saw the Asus version, but as with any Asus monitor, this thing was gorgeous. Uh, sub millisecond latency for your games and DCI P3 color gamut support for, I mean, I don't know why, Alex, you need this. That's not really a gaming um, uh, level, if I'm not mistaken. I, yeah, I think it's it's more about sort of bridging Accuracy. the gap. But- uh, yeah, about accuracy to a certain extent, but more about sort of straddling the line between a, a traditional gaming monitor and a TV. Um, and the, the audience that is going to want this maybe would be tempted to get a, a 4K TV and hook a PC up to it, or they could have something in the middle that still gives them the really great resolution, uh, the crazy colors, and of course all this other added value stuff. Um, so I think it's just about um, you know going after that really hardcore gamer audience, and when you're creating that kind of panel, yeah, color quality has to figure into it as well. Okay, so one more monitor I think we'll talk about before we move on to other products. Uh, This is a different type of monitor, and this is a different type of product altogether. Alex, I'm talking about Razer's Project Linda, this prototype project thing where you insert your Razer phone and it turns into a laptop thing, dock, I don't know. Tell us what Project Linda is and what it could be one day. Um, well, what it is is a prototype, and what it could be one day is maybe a retail product, but probably not. So uh, if you remember all the old sort of... There are many attempts now to sort of turn uh, yeah, dock a phone into something else, be it a PC or a tablet, and have it you know transform into a larger form-factor device. We had uh, the old lap dock from the, the Motorola Atrix back in the day. We had... Um, the Asus phone pad or pad phone. I never get those two. Oh man, I forgot up, about that. The actually, I Classic. think one generation when Asus was fully into this just crazy modular stuff, and back when Android tablets were a thing, um, you had a tablet that you could dock a phone into, but that you could then dock into a keyboard. <laughs> so yes, had, like, that was the phone pad version. Right, that was the phone pad. Okay. Uh, anyway, so this is a little bit different, and actually, uh, you know, potentially just as crazy as as those things. You have. Um, what is essentially a razor blade style 13 inch laptop with uh the uh, uh touchpad sort of carved out uh you place your razor phone in there uh usb connector goes into it and suddenly it transforms into this mirrored display thing uh so you can have uh an android interface running on the screen on this laptop uh you have the all the razor chroma stuff on the keyboard a uh, bunch of extra battery in there, and uh, it can do stuff. And Razer actually kind of wasn't clear on exactly what the end game was there in terms of like functionality. Like, is it a gaming thing? Is it a productivity thing? They're kind of just putting this out hit there now and saying, okay, here's something we could do. Um, and you know, maybe it becomes a product, maybe it doesn't. But if it does become an actual thing you could do, then there needs to be a, like a clear vision of what it's for. Right now, the the Razer phone is a phone, but it's very much a, a focus towards gaming with a 120 hertz display. Uh, we'll have to see where this goes. But actually, as we were talking about this at CES, part of the problem really with this is Android itself. Android does not lend itself particularly well, even to, I mean, it kind of does with tablets, but certainly not a laptop, right? I mean, when you plug Android in, it's still basically just Android, but on a bigger screen. Yeah, that's what they're dealing with right now is 
uh, on top of the, uh, on top of the fact they're saying this is a project that we're working on. It's right in the name. They're mm-hmm. saying we literally don't know how we're going to make this software end up working. They're showing. Uh, I mean, of course, they can do simple things. They can make the phone into a trackpad and just put things on the screen. But that's not really the most compelling situation. That's not taking advantage of the fact that you have this second screen down there. They have concepts, but they don't know how it's actually going to be able to be executed to show different things on the top screen, uh, you know, on the laptop screen and the phone screen. Uh, They don't know how this how they're going to make it a desktop-like experience. They have some ideas of a different style of launcher that automatically opens when mm-hmm. you launch, you know, into this. And But still, you're really still working with, you know, what happens when, you know, we've dealt all dealt with this with tablets. You know, you open a, an app and it just wants to force portrait mode or, you know, whatever. Those are things that are really hard to get around on a laptop, uh, when your only course of action, and it's not a touchscreen laptop either, so your only course of action would be to remove the phone from the dock, and it gets really messy as well. So I think it's pretty easy to see that the hardware, um, come on, Razer knows how to make a laptop, but the software, I mean, Razer doesn't even know how they're gonna how they're gonna handle this. Yeah, the soft so on the software side, you mentioned running uh, two different things on uh, having an Android device that then connects to a screen and shows something else on that second screen. From memory, I think that's something that was added natively in Oreo. So that's one. That's something that after a software update, they could maybe just do in Android. Um, the other other side of that is, and actually, we, we've seen you know Huawei and uh, Samsung build out their own desktop style UIs. Mm-hmm. You know, both are a little bit janky right now, um, but potentially, you what the, the ideal way of doing this is you put it in and it just launches the Android tablet interface. And from that, you know, if you get an app that doesn't play nicely in uh, landscape on a big screen then you just get the phone version in a window and maybe you can resize it. But yeah, like the, the actual utility of this is li- quite limited by Android itself right now. Um, and I think, you know, the, we're still probably like five years out from this being something that really works in a consumer product. Of course, the other side of it is it's limited to just the Razer phone, which there are very few of them out there right now. But um, yeah, you could very much see if uh, Google's Fuchsia OS eventually sort of comes to kind of merge slash replace Chrome and Android, um, that if it is just this OS that can run on anything the way Microsoft envisioned Windows 10 running on everything from phones to desktop PCs, that, yeah, you could just plug it in. It has the extra battery in there. Presumably phone chips will be fast enough in there to run at least a a basic fast desktop experience, uh, and it would just work, and that would be built into the OS as standard. Um, Obviously, the hardware's there right now, um, but the software is not. So it's kind of interesting to see Razer do this. I think, you know, my sort of cynical view is this is basically just a big exercise in uh, brand value and in marketing. In, yeah. in, in the same way as, I forget the name of it, but that stupid, uh, like, three-screen laptop was last year. They Valkyrie. made something create. Yeah, they, they poured effectively marketing money into building something in their R&D labs, and they get to show it at CES. They get to come away with a bunch of awards, and they get people talking about the Razer brand, which is great. And if... Yeah, you know, from you know just a, a purely uh, you know cost benefit perspective, uh, that's probably mission accomplished for them right now for those two devices for the uh, for Project Linda this year and for the um, uh, the I can't remember the name but the three screen laptop. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It was yeah, that was absurd. But 
I mean, I remember there were a couple of projects back in 2017 that never hit the market and never pro- probably never will, but it gave people something uh, to talk about as opposed to just letting Razer announce a whole bunch of laptop upgrades like many other mm-hmm. OEMs do. And it actually elevated Razer and the Razer phone to uh, something of a conversation topic, which other than it being sort of a, a punchline in recent months, hasn't been much of a conversation topic. So I think it worked for Razer. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing where, you know, a company like OnePlus or a company like LG or Samsung, they might launch a crazy new color of their phone, uh, get a lot of press coverage, and then suddenly that phone is back in the headlines. It's the you know same strategy, just on a, a grander scale. So speaking of a grander scale, we're going to take our first break to thank our sponsor, Thrifter. Every week, we thank Thrifter for its support of the show. And we also go to thrifter.com. You could do it with us if you're listening at home to choose our favorite deal that's available right now because Thrifter showcases every deal that's out there that you care about, not just tech, music, home lifestyle, anything you want, pets, anything you want. Go, you, you can't can find actually it at buy Thrifter. pets on Thrifter. Just True. Just you can buy pet accessories. Just all the extras. Uh, You're not going to so, get like discount puppies. That's, that's not God, no. Do not never buy a puppy from a puppy mill, please. Thrifter does not support that. I have it on good authority. Um, so as we do every week, we're going to go around. We're going to choose a single deal that we like from the Thrifter homepage. Uh, I think I know Andrew's already chosen his because he teased it before the show. So I will <laughs> I? let you begin. What, what do you have for oh. us today? I think I, I don't think I'm going to do that one because I kept scrolling and I found something that I'm going to buy after this podcast ends. Oh, God. Which is, so dangerous. Um, uh, I may have already bought it. You don't know. Um, Xbox Live Golds, they have a buy three months, get three months for free. So it's a really cheap deal. Uh, twenty four ninety nine is usually a ripoff for three months, but they have a a bogo, if you will, twenty four ninety nine for six months, which is a pretty good deal. It's usually retails around six, you know, fifty five, sixty dollars, unless you go, you know, hunting really deep um, to to get a year. So this is easy. Just click on Amazon and buy it, rather than having to go to some weird, um, maybe a scam code site where they email you a, a code seven days later with it. Uh, you save five dollars on. I'm super jealous. I can't get discounted Xbox Live up here in Canada. So really, it sounds like a really good deal. Yeah, those things, those digital offers, just never happen because the volume's just not there. Um, uh, what about you're, you're you? the one guy? With I'm Xbox that guy. Live, that's fine. <laughs> um, Alex, what do you what do you have uh, for us this week? So we're talking a lot about S nine these days. That's going to continue uh, as we sort of proceed to launch. But actually, around this time of year, you also get great deals on last year's Samsung phones as well. So my pick is you can either get an S eight or S eight plus uh, on Verizon unlocked for uh, five. Uh, sorry, four fifty nine uh, for the S eight and four ninety nine for the S eight plus. So crazy good deal there considering just the hardware that you're getting and the fact that actually at a in terms of the the hardware of the new phones you're not looking at something that's radically different from from an s8 um in, in the new s9 so if you want to spend a whole lot less than the s9 will eventually cost and still get a great phone uh two options there on verizon uh five uh, 459 and 499 and that is on woot 
All right. Yeah. Woot's got some pretty good deals. It used to be in the um, spotlight a lot more, but Amazon's outwooted Woot in, in recent years, I think. <laughs> didn't Amazon, wait, didn't somebody buy Woot? Didn't Amazon I do not buy recall Woot? a Woot purchase. Okay. Anyway, uh, I'll Google while you tell us about your favorite thing here. From- so mine is uh, is an aspirational product. It's something that I would like to buy, and I might actually pull the trigger today. Uh, it is a Corsair K70 Rapid Fire mechanical keyboard. Now, I don't use a mechanical keyboard, and I never have, but I've heard so many things about uh, the cherry switches and all of these are uh, amazing feeling keys that you get with mechanical keyboards. I hear them when I go to various offices and I hear the, the, the people typing really, really aggressively on these keys, but, uh, that could also be the new MacBook pro. So you never know. Um, all I know is that the mechanical keyboards I hear about make typing more enjoyable and I don't know, they just harken back to a, a better time when windows 95 was, uh, was the, was the new hotness and Bill Gates mm. was wearing his pants really, really high up on his waist. Uh, aside for a moment, I was I was reading Twitter yesterday and I saw the speech that Bill Gates gave when he retired from Microsoft back in 2000. It has been seven, it's been 18 years since Bill Gates yeah. retired from Microsoft's uh, as CEO, handing over the reins to uh, then CEO Steve Ballmer Oh my God, retired. how time flies. Yes, hmm. Steve Vollmer is now a professional basketball player. He's very good. <laughs> um, so that is my pick. The Corsair K70 Rapid Fire Mechanical Keyboard is down to $65, refurbished at Newegg. Goes for about $120 new, so that's a pretty good deal. And as I've found, Newegg always has decent quality refurbished products. So thank you, as always, Thrifter, for supporting the show. If you want to find out about all the latest deals, you can go to thrifter.com or sign up for their newsletter and you'll get your specialized deals in your inbox every day. Here's your Woot update. Uh, They were purchased by Amazon in 2010. Oh my God. So no wonder they've started outdoing Woot. They've just incorporated it. So how is Woot uh, even still around? I don't quite understand this, but I don't know. Who knows? Okay. All right. So let's go back to CES announcements. Andrew, this was something you were really excited about. Android Auto is even more useful with Google Assistant and wireless. But I'm pretty sure Android Auto had Google Assistant and was wireless compatible before. <laughs> I'm so wrong, the, but I, I'm I'm not. Why the is the two there parts this- of it are like it was yes assistant was pretty much there it just wasn't feature complete enough for google to call it assistant so it did a lot of the same things already and you know as is typical for google they kind of just iterate and add things without making like a major announcement and then every once in a while they roll it all up and say it's google assistant now uh we saw this in many different products um I don't really care. Uh, I just care that that it's up to parity now. And there is no doubt about how Google Assistant will work uh, when you're plugged in or or not just connected to a head unit in your car. Uh, it just means that whether you have your, you know, your Google Home at home or your phone wherever you are or connected to 
uh, your car. It works the exact same way. There's going to be no, um, you know, aside from the the obvious of, you know, casting to your head unit in your car or something like that. It's not going to happen. Um, that's all, that's all that matters. Um, we saw some pretty cool demos of it working to control lots of different smart home devices and all that kind of stuff. And the big thing for me is that the flow is exactly the same. Um, Android Auto did have voice controls, but they sometimes worked differently and used a different voice and things like that. All that's gone. Now, wireless-wise, this, I mean, Google announced that they were gonna gonna have a standardized wireless Android Auto system back at Google I.O. Uh, last year, which is a long, long time ago. Uh, and now they're just finally getting into these third-party head units, starting with Pioneer has a couple of them. And the reason why I think this is such a big deal is that we've heard so many complaints of Android Auto not working properly with who knows what variety of head units and phones and USB cables and how it's installed and all that kind of stuff. This is your typical um, you know, third-party installer issue uh, where who knows what the guy at Car Toys did when he or Best Buy or whatever when he installed your head unit or, God forbid, what you did when you installed your own head unit. Um, you don't have to worry about that now. It's just plain old Wi-Fi direct, uh, and that's just going to work on a wider variety of head units and phones. Well, that's a cool idea. I, I I like the idea of standardizing something that had been very very uh, inconsistent up till now. Oh, an extreme pain. Uh, USB-C is used in many different ways on different phones. We've already seen this from the different ways they do headphone dongles and charging standards and all kinds of stuff. Throwing Android Auto on there is just a whole nother thing that a lot of manufacturers probably aren't even paying attention to. Uh, and it caused so many headaches for something that, you know, these heads, uh, these head units cost four five, six, seven hundred $700. I just got a, a 2015, um, car and, there's no support for Android Auto, obviously, but the head unit is terrible. It's so bad. And I'm like, yeah. if it was that bad, it, it, you know, when they were selling it in 2014, you know, there's so much demand for these types of products where you just plug in or connect your phone and it just takes over the dash and works and you don't have to mess with anything and you can use the same voice commands as you would at home. I don't even want to talk to my car because there are you have to say things that are so specific. Um, right. You know, it's like you can't just say voice control. You have to hold down a button on the steering wheel, say like voice control, call, activate or something, and then it'll yeah. start the call activation mode. You and know, then just I like you would say, say to another human. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, I just don't want to use it. So give me Android Auto all day. Uh, one other thing that you can give me all day, Vivo's in-display fingerprint sensor. Alex, this was a cool demo. We knew it was coming because it was announced long before CES, but mm-hmm. we actually got to see this unnamed Vivo phone on the show floor, got to meet with the people who built the sensor inside at Synaptics, and we got to try it. Uh, There's a video on our YouTube channel that shows how it works. But for those who haven't seen it, walk us through this new in-display fingerprint sensor from Vivo and uh, Synaptics. 
Yeah, so a lot of it works pretty much as you would imagine it. Um, we're all used to using fingerprint sensors on a smartphone. This is the same thing, but it's just built into the screen. Um, from a technical standpoint, the way it works is it works with OLED panels and you have the sensor in there. It's a, it's actually a, a visual sensor, so it picks up, it actually takes an image of your flattened fingerprint. So you need to flatten your finger on the display for it to work, but that's, you know, chances are you're doing that anyway. And it uses the light from the LED uh, in, in the OLED display to uh, illuminate that. And from there, it just takes a photo of it and then matches it against your, uh, whatever's been stored in the, the secure enclave on the phone. And uh, yeah, the, there is a, I think a, a slight speed disadvantage doing this. And of course we're going to see mm-hmm. probably that, that speed up in uh, subsequent generations of this tech, but yeah, tiny sensor under there scans it and it works that you know it means obviously you need a target on there to press but then it uses the light from the stuff that's already on the screen when you pick it up to to then scan your fingerprint um really really intuitive uh the setup process i think uh you know we were dealing with the vivo ui in chinese so it's a little bit different to what we're used to on most android phones but fundamentally yeah it's just the same setup process that you go through uh on that uh, sort of touch uh you know not not touch sensitive, but the uh, above the area of that touch screen that has uh, the sensor below it. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, Andrew, you and I both used it. It worked pretty well. It's um, other than you know the different technology behind the way it works, uh, you know, very much a, a natural way to to use fingerprint on a phone. And you know, getting the usability side of it right is just a case of displaying the UI in the right position and getting the sensor in the right position under the glass for that to work. Um, I didn't really see any disadvantages of doing it this way besides the slight difference in speed compared to what we have on a lot of capacitive sensors. But yeah, it, it seemed to work well. I didn't notice any difference in brightness in the area where the uh, the sensor was, although you know we'll, we, we didn't get under daylight or anything else, so that you know, may be a, a difference there. But um, yeah, from my, my perspective, it just works, right? And I for a lot of people, really quickly on the on the speed point it's at 0.7 millisecond uh, 0.7 seconds rather than mm-hmm. 0.2 um right i mean that's Am that's I, a perceptible uh, yeah yeah that's a perceptible difference it's not a huge right. deal but it is a, a difference so you do notice that and you've seen a lot of manufacturers quote you know i think OnePlus recently made a huge deal about yeah we have 0.2 uh second response and like that's awesome you do notice how fast it is but everybody has access to a 0.2 second capacitive fingerprint sensor they could put on their phone. Um, what's not, not everybody has access to an in-display fingerprint. And also uh, when we're moving towards uh, face unlock and when that kind of technology is getting really good, um, chances are by the time, you know, that 0.7 seconds elapses, you're already in a position where the phone can see your face and potentially could have unlocked it anyway. Yeah, I mean, that was my question. Is this going to change the smartphone industry or have we already kind of moved on? Rear fingerprint sensors have become the norm since infinity-type displays, bezel-less displays have proliferated in 2017. Most companies have shifted their fingerprint sensors. Samsung itself seems to have fixed its placement in 2018. Maybe. Maybe. Even Samsung isn't implementing this sensor, we, we don't think, right, um, in its new phones. So will this catch on or have companies already moved on to face unlock? 
I think we're going to see that play out kind of on a, a company by company basis and depending on what components people have access to. And re- I, I don't know. I, until we actually use this in a device, it's going to be hard to sort of conclusively answer that question. You could very easily make arguments in the direction of either, um, you know, a regular fingerprint sensor on the back that's super fast, um, you know, the kind of futuristic value and uh, the added convenience of having it under the display uh, where you can press it even when the phone's flat on a table or just using face unlock, using a system like Apple uses or like OnePlus uses because you don't need to do anything then. The phone just looks at you and knows that it's you. Um, I, I could very easily argue for any of those three points. And having used a lot of different unlock methods and phones um, this year, I I mean, I'm they're, they're all pretty good, to be honest. I have no strong preference either way. Yeah, I think that's really it. The three methods seem to be fairly reliable, fairly quick, and none are, you know, enormously disadvantageous than the other. It's just, they all just work. And I think that's I think great. That the, the, exactly. I think that the great part about an in-display fingerprint, though, is that when it's not in use, it's not there, and it doesn't preclude you from doing other things like a, like a face unlock or an iris scanner or what, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, of course, you know, you have to pay the little bit of licensing to synaptics right now for, you know, their technology, but most of these, if not all of these fingerprint sensors that are currently in phones are run by synaptics or some other, you know, well-known name that provides the sensor. They're, they're provide, they're buying IP in either, either case. And with something that's in display, uh, the module is smaller, the physical you know, obviously there's no physical footprint on the outside, um, but the footprint on the inside is pretty small as well. We saw just the the raw component. It's tiny, just like a capacitive fingerprint sensor is. And it just means, I mean, we could talk about Samsung improving the fingerprint sensor placement uh, potentially on the Galaxy S9, but they went a full generation. They released three different phones with arguably the worst possible fingerprint sensor placement ever. Um and they seem to think that that was <laughs> that was an acceptable exchange. Uh, I would much rather have a fingerprint sensor underneath the glass on the front, even if it took a full second to recognize, mm-hmm. versus point one for the one that's that's up where you can't reach it on the Galaxy Note Eight. I mean, they could have put it on the top of the phone, and it would have been easier to use. Uh, this is definitely an easier way to go if you can do it at you know obviously samsung galaxy s9 scale which is going to be insanely huge yeah that's the other thing we don't i mean part of the problem isn't just being able to do it but being able to do it at scale and samsung has to be the obvious choice to eventually bring this technology in given the 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 feature you already have with um touch uh, with pressure sensitivity in the uh the s8 and, and note 8 it's that's just a super obvious place to have that in there anyway and it would just work so well with the 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 ux that they built up around that yeah, and obviously Samsung is going to be the one to move whatever it decides forward. I think it's already decided that iris scanning is, for better or worse, going to be that technology. I don't know whether it will give up the fingerprint sensor as a redundancy, as redundancy or as an alternative, but my assumption this year is that iris scanning will work a hell of a lot better than it did on the S and the Note Seven and, and S Eight. Um, sure, hope so. I, my theory kind of is that um, I mean Samsung. It seems like in the biometrics this year is going to be all about options. 
Uh, I could, you could very well imagine uh, with the new chip and with the cameras on the front of this thing that um, face unlock would become the you know the fast easy option, kind of like it is on on the S8 now, except none of them work particularly well, so it's kind of a false choice. Um, so if you want the speed, you go for uh, face unlock because it just looks at you and it knows you're there. Uh, if you want the extra security, you go with iris because uh, you know it's a bit more difficult because you've got to point it right at your eyes, but then you have that extra layer of security. Uh, and if you're just used to what you're used to and uh, you want to press fingerprint scanner on the back, that's also pretty secure. But um, yeah, you, you obviously have usability restrictions there. You can't use it while it's on a table. You've got to reach and find the thing. Uh, not always easy if you have smaller hands. So yeah, it'll be about choice, except this year there will actually be three good choices, hopefully. Or maybe there'll be a fourth choice and they'll just throw in an un- in-display fingerprint sensor for for good hey, measure. Samsung, you never know. Yeah. We like to please. You know someone's going to do front and back fingerprint sensors at some point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It'll be Vivo. <laughs> um, okay, so that's cool. Uh, but what is also cool about biometrics and fingerprint sensors is that a Sony phone is launching in the U.S. with an honest-to-goodness fingerprint sensor. That what year works. is it? That's I, I authorized. Was... That's allowed <laughs> on the back. It's the Xperia XA2 and XA2 Ultra. And Andrew, other than that, these are actually pretty decent mid-range phones. Yeah. Um, but I know you're more excited about the fact that this very weird deal with some carrier in the US has expired that now allows Sony to make phones with fingerprint sensors again. And Sony is using the opportunity to actually bring it to phones that probably wouldn't have had fingerprint sensors in them anyway. I mean, they're even bringing it to the lower end phone that we didn't even really talk about at all, which is the Xperia L2 which is like a sub $200 phone that really wasn't going to have a, probably wasn't going to have a fingerprint sensor anyway. And the XA2 and XA2 Ultra are kind of on that cusp where Sony hasn't traditionally had them either, kind of in this $350, $400 ish price range. Um, I mean, I don't know. Let's, the, let's not give them too much credit. I mean, Huawei's been shipping $200 phones with fingerprint scanners for like a year now. Oh, no. Uh, I'm not giving them credit from that perspective. Just more of an interesting thing that they use these phones, which Sony has traditionally left out fingerprint sensors worldwide to Mm. introduce the fingerprint sensor in the U.S. It's kind of just like a making up for lost time, I suppose. Uh, But the bigger thing is that this isn't something we have to talk about anymore, which is fantastic because we've harped on this for so, so long. Um, But interestingly, the bigger thing for me, it's just how it's one part of an overall theme with these two phones that um, they got rid of many of the quirks, actually. Even the fingerprint sensor is just in a normal position on the back. It's not on the side, which some people don't really care for. Um, They also kind of curved the back of the phones. They reduced the bezels on the sides. Um, They just made them a little more ergonomic. They make a little more sense. They put more focus on the front-facing cameras uh, the XA2 Ultra has an OIS um, optically stabilized 16 megapixel camera, which is interesting. Um, they're doing a lot of normal things, which is very un-Sony-like, and you kind of hope that that rolls into their their next flagship or four that they release in 2018. Yeah, sure. 
No, I, I, I agree. I think it's, it's fine. Uh, obviously, Sony still has no carrier deals in the US. So these phones will only be sold in unlocked channels, which of course limits their potential impact. But for anybody looking at a $350 to $450 phone, as we, we learned last week, the XA2 will be $350 and the XA2 Ultra will be $450 in the US. Uh, so not super cheap. But Give it a couple of weeks and they'll drop by 50 bucks because that's so. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Six, uh, Snapdragon 630, three gigs of RAM in the XA2, four gigs in the XA2 Ultra, 3,300 milliamps in the XA2, 3580 in the XA2 Ultra. So decent specs, decent mid-range products. Let's hope somebody buys them. Uh, I don't really have anything else to say. Yeah, I I don't know... <laughs> I don't know if anybody will, but, but they're finally, uh, people have a reason to without, you know, they can buy a Sony phone for the design and not have to give up a whole bunch of stupid, trivial things that they would get on, you know, a $179 Huawei phone. Yeah, huh. and you get a hell of a lot nicer UI than you would get on a $170 Huawei phone as well. Um, and it Sony has is, Oreo. Yeah, exactly. Sony's a pretty much stock Oreo these days. Yeah, that's fair. And it, they, they do a decent job with security updates. Not an awesome job, but better than many other companies. So that's another, another plus. Uh, and obviously these phones play games, as many other phones do. And if you're interested in gaming on your Android phone, you should check out our second sponsor of the show, GameStash. GameStash is a subscription service for unlimited gaming. You, play, you pay $4.99 per month and you get access to hundreds of full Android games, even games that were once that once required you to spend real money for in-app purchases have been changed around so that those games no longer force you to pay money. You can play through them from beginning to end for free as part of your subscription. And they are adding new games every week, including to my surprise, all of the Mega Man remakes, Mega Man two mobile mega man three mobile um lots of awesome mega man games have been added recently and the uh tomb raider games as well the remakes of those tomb raider one and two have been added so if you're looking to kind of catch up on old games that you haven't played in years even games from the original playstation and xbox Here's a really great place to start. You can play for free for 14 days. That's two full weeks before having to spend $4.99 per month after that. You can cancel any time during your 14-day free trial. And if you are interested, go to gamestash.com slash acpod. That is gamestash.com slash acpod to check it out. And we thank them for their sponsorship. Okay, final topic of the day, Alex. This, I think, was probably the most dramatic of the entire show, in my opinion. Uh, AT&T steps away from the deal to sell Huawei phones only hours before, well, maybe not hours, but let's (laughs) call it hours, before... News broke hours. The the company was expected to announce that it was going to carry the Mate 10 Pro... And Huawei basically threw up its arms, did some weird, uh, you know, Generation Z 
stuff, uh, <laughs> threw out some code words at us and said, go blog. And it was very odd. Um, tell us what happened. Yeah, so uh, it probably makes most sense to sort of explain our timeline for this because this is how we we found out about it. Um, so yeah, so as you said, we had our briefing with Huawei ahead of MWC, as as is often the case. Companies give us stuff in advance um, so we can we can post immediately at launch uh, uh, or announcement time. Um, yeah, and we we were you sitting next to me, I think, in this briefing, and we have Huawei talking about. Uh, what we were expecting to be uh, their big sort of triumphant uh, launch into the US market with this partnership with AT&T that had long been rumored and software had leaked out and stuff. And there was a ton of evidence suggesting it would be happening. Uh, And instead, we got this sort of weird, like you said, talk about millennials. And um, yeah, there there was this marketing presentation that kind of went off the road at one point. uh, And it really just didn't make a whole lot of sense. And um yeah, look, looking back on that now, you could see that this wasn't really the presentation that Huawei wanted to be making. I think just hours after we came out of that briefing, or perhaps even minutes, we had news breaking that um, I think, what was the phrase, political pressure had been exerted uh, on AT&T through the FCC, um, essentially to cancel this deal, uh, basically for reasons of national security. Um there was a report cited that was published in 2012 about uh, ZTE and Huawei, uh, bringing up concerns over potential ties to the Chinese Communist Party. And um, yeah, ultimately, AT&T caved to that pressure and the deal was off. We've since found out through a report on Android Police that uh, a similar Verizon deal that was planned through, uh, that was planned for later in the year, presumably with different hardware for Verizon, that is now on the rocks as well. And, um, yeah, there are, there is now a potential, uh, bill on the way that would, uh, seriously limit the extent to which, to which Verizon could do business, uh, sorry, so to which Huawei could do business in the infrastructure sphere as well in the U S so pretty much, you know, basically the U S government bringing the hammer down and preventing Huawei from getting a foothold in the U S. Um, and, we had a keynote presentation by Huawei CEO Richard Yu, uh, where you know he took a section to basically uh, you know talk about how you know that Huawei had the best technology, the best security, and that they were trusted by all these other countries. Um, essentially, you know, not explicitly confirming that uh, the reports that um, you know that the whole thing had been torpedoed, but. Yeah, effectively saying pretty much doing that pretty much doing that and saying that u.s consumers would miss out as a result yeah he was not happy and and i can imagine you know none of the people that talked to us were happy uh no it was it was weird sort of looking back on the atmosphere in that briefing aside from the fact that the the marketing just made no sense um yeah, you know, obviously that this you know you could tell that that this this wasn't a good show for them and the people in that room just were were not happy and have been dealing with the the repercussions of this uh, privately. So to give uh, a, a couple more tidbits from that meeting, it was announced that Huawei would be launching its biggest awareness campaign ever in the U.S. If mm-hmm. you're in the U.S., you may have already seen some of this because Huawei paid for coverage on almost every technology website, including Android Central, uh, with a tagline, 
of the Mate 10, the best phone you've never heard of. Which is great. I, I love that as a marketing line, especially for, for that company. Yeah, you've seen those ads all over the internet uh, the last couple of weeks leading up to, to CES. Uh, there's another one that you may actually see on buildings, how to pronounce Huawei. It's helping you pronounce this unknown company's name. Wowway, uh, which is not exactly true. You're not going to say Wowway every time, but it's better than saying like Huia or whatever. So uh, it's another part of the awareness campaign. And the third part, which I think is going to end up hurting them in the long run, is a partnership with Gal Gadot, the amazing star of Wonder Woman and many other projects. She is uh, reportedly uh, already a Huawei user. She helped Huawei launch the P10, or sorry, the P8 in uh, a couple of years ago and is going to be their chief experience officer. Huawei won't say whether she will actually be an employee of the company, like, say, uh, what's it, Kelso? Um, <laughs> Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher was of, of Lenovo, and we all know how well that went. So... That's a big unknown, but there were a lot of platitudes around how Gal Gadot will help the company appeal to both men and women because she's respected equally from both sides. Totally understandable from that, from like a marketer's perspective. We'll see how that actually transpires in ads or whatever, however she represents the company. But there's reason to be skeptical of this given the really bad outcomes of previous partnerships like this not to mention the fact that she always tweets with her iphone she always is caught with her iphone like every single time she's photographed in like the last year she's had her iphone out i don't think she's ever been photographed with a huawei phone so this i don't know what this is meant to do but celebrities always get caught with their iphones out yeah it just seems like such a such an old school rookie mistake. This has never worked out in, in a positive light. Uh, I'm not really sure. I I agree. This is the one misstep after multiple other marketing and, and branding things that are have dramatically improved since, especially we saw a lot of the honor stuff a couple of years ago that just never never went anywhere in the U.S. Yeah, and that that was there was a centerpiece around. Uh, around that as well um with celebrity endorsement we've always done it a few times over the years with various people um but yeah with that with that big splashy uh campaign around honor i think it was brooklyn beckham at the time that they had on board for that he skateboarded on stage great because because youth um yeah so we'll we'll see how it goes i'm i'm skeptical as well um this is just in the past been one of many sort of celebrity endorsements that huawei has done uh to their credit, in the past, it's mainly just been about throwing money at someone and getting their image next to the phone. It hasn't been as involved as this potentially may be. But like you say, there have been examples of, of this where they've tried to get the uh, essentially the, uh, the celebrity mouthpiece involved at a product level, and that almost never works out. But Alex, the phone is not DOA. It is coming to the US in February. It's just not yep. going to be at a carrier. So... Will this work? The company is selling it at at Amazon, at Best Buy, Microsoft stores, which is interesting. Uh, a couple others, seven hundred ninety nine dollars. But until 
during the pre-order period, you get a $150 gift card for whatever retailer you bought it from, which is kind of cool, brings it down to $650. Mm-hmm. Is it worth it? Is it a good price to pay for this phone? Um, it, it depends. And it's it's really hard to answer the question as whether or not this will be a, a success or a failure. By the standards that Huawei maybe a week ago was expecting, it will almost certainly be a failure now because the carrier isn't involved. But in terms of buying it outright at a store, um, I would very much expect that 799 to be chipped away at after the pre-order period um, so that it's maybe 700 or something like that. HTC U11 style. Yeah, pretty much. The, you, you know, Notionally, the price was much higher, but there was this almost constant discount going on. I would expect to see something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, f- the phone itself is good. There are still like one or two software weirdnesses to be that you have to deal with there. And, um, you know, Huawei's progress there has been perhaps slower than we would have liked. The The other thing for me is, uh, it, like in terms of Huawei's just ambitions in the US in general, um, I mean, at best, this is going to set them back multiple years. Um, uh, you know, they're left in the position where they pretty much have to prove a negative now in terms of uh, their you know, the the trustworthiness of their products. Um, The way they got around that with their infrastructure business in the UK is pretty much by opening up their source code to GCHQ so they could prove pretty much mathematically that there was no um, espionage or anything else going on. Maybe that's something they could pursue in the US. I don't know. But uh, I I think the message really being sent here by the the termination of this AT&T deal at the last minute is that, okay, Huawei, you can spend however many years now uh, courting, say, Sprint or someone else, and it could still be torpedoed at the last minute. So they could continue throwing money into this money pit and go nowhere. And the decision that needs to be made, I guess, by them is whether it's worth trying to solve this problem or do they just go all in on this direct-to-consumer thing? So they are going all in on the consumer thing in a I number mean, they of are, ways. They are for now because they've made the phones. They have to, you know, they have to do something with them. My question is, in a year's time, like where, where does this leave? What, when, when they're planning the next step of the next flagship, um, what is the strategy if they know that there's no chance of them getting a carrier deal because the government's going to scupper it? Sure. No, I was going to mention they also have a new you know, mesh router system up to 16, um, up to 16 points within the home. You know, they are, they're not going quietly into the night and obviously a router is not going to impact their consumer business much in the U S but it is showing that they are willing to try new things, bring in new products. Surprisingly, the router is going to be, I mean, of all things to get hung up about, like, I would say a router is probably the more alarming of the two, but hey, I'm yeah. not the FCC, so I don't know anything. Uh, that said, the Mate 10 Pro, Alex and I have used it extensively. I think it's a, the best phone they've ever made by a mile. Um, they, oh man, to see the faces of the executives this week, it just broke my heart. It was so sad. And now knowing in hindsight what they were mm-hmm. going through, it just breaks my heart even more because this was a company that had, I mean, Richard, you said it like Americans deserve more and better choices. And right now without Huawei, with basically LG admitting defeat, 
it's a duopoly between Apple and Samsung, which is fine because mm-hmm. they with a bit of Google making- thrown in, I suppose. Google is that other player that can continue to just throw money at uh, at selling phone hardware. Uh, sure, I guess so. But in terms of market share and mind share, nobody knows what the Pixel is yet. Um, that'll change. It'll take years, but it'll change. But this is, I mean, Huawei's got had every intention of out Samsunging Samsung. And uh, that won't happen. So yeah, they're actually interesting to see a lot of the language in, in that uh, that ill-fated briefing uh, was around you know kind of repeating the Samsung thing and and gaining mindshare that way. Millennials, Gen Zers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Actually, the the incoming um, head of marketing for Huawei US is former Samsung. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of what was said. It was basically Samsung circa 2014, 2015. Um, very interesting. But whether it happens now, we'll see. Uh, that's it for our our list. But I will open up the floor if you guys want to add, add anything else. Any, any interesting tidbits from CES, hashtag CES blackout? Um, um, oh, my gosh. The, well... <laughs> The lights were on, and then the lights were off, and then a few hours later, they a were lot of people again. lost their minds. Yeah, that is how life goes. Yeah, my my favorite thing about that, Andrew and I were parked up outside North Hall for about an hour or so, um, and they locked down all the halls during this time. And just the number of people that would try and um, get in through an exit door while it was open from the other side, and just ignore the security guys that were yelling at them when they're in a public place with a name tag on and the name of their company publicly representing that company. Uh, it was was pretty funny to watch. Yeah, that sounded like a terrible, terrible situation for the security people. Correct. Yeah. What I mean, just the fact that it rained as much as it did the day before still blows my mind. Like, it was torrential on Tuesday. And... The fact that they closed the Google booth because they just they couldn't sluice out enough of the water was mm-hmm. was hilarious. Oh, and you guys checked that out. Did you guys go down the slide at all? We didn't actually. We did as, a, as a consequence of it being rained off one day, there were massive queues for everything on the day that it was open. So mm. um, we got to look at the products. We did not go down the slide. I'm, I'm not sure either of us would have uh, would have actually comfortably been able to fit down that slide. It did look a little small. Yeah, it was. Um, it had a tight spiral to it. We'll say. <laughs> a tight spiral all right well i think we'll end it there for today that was uh it was a long one guys we just hit an hour 30 if you if you're listening thank you for listening all the way to the end and bearing with us as we took our uh, extended break in the new year. Hope you guys had a very happy new year, a Merry Christmas, a happy holidays, and you came out of it on the other side, happy and healthy. Uh, Healthier than we all are after CES, at least. Yeah, yeah <laughs> indeed. Um, given that we haven't done it in a while, let's, let's, let's do our, let's do our quick plugs. Alex, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Alex Doby on all the things, and uh, especially this week, check out some stuff on Instagram if you want to see some cool-looking pictures of uh, Las Vegas and and um, and the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon, my God, that looked good. Very, very cool stuff. Andrew, where can people find you? 
Twitter and Instagram, same name, Andrew Martinick, M-A-R-T-O-N-I-K. Lots of pretty pictures, not of the Grand Canyon, and I'm not jealous whatsoever, Alex. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, my name is Daniel Bader. You can find me on all the things at JourneyDan. You can find all of us at AndroidCentral.com all day, every day, and check out Alex's awesome videos at Android at YouTube.com slash AndroidCentral. Lots of st- stuff uh, to check out this week and in the coming weeks. That's it for this week, and we will actually see you next week. Promise. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye.